Good morning. Good morning and happy Father's Day. And just so you fathers know, we have a bunch of donuts and fruit out there and coffee. Would love for you to raid that table and come away with no less than two donuts, one for each hand. That's why God gave us two hands, is to hold two donuts. So go and, go and make yourself comfortable. It's good to see you. If I've not met you yet, which is a few of you, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy. Very excited to teach this passage today. Um, I'm always excited to teach. This is one of the biggest joys and honors of my life is to get to do this every single Sunday. I thank God every single week that I get to do this. And I know I always say that I'm excited about this passage, but I'm really excited about this passage. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis. Today we're going to find ourselves picking up where we left off, and we're going to be in Genesis 15 today. If you are a guest here, we've been marching through just the bookmark events of Abraham's life. And this is kind of where we pick up today. And listen, I don't know all of you really well, super well, but for those of you who I do know, um, waiting on people is something that's difficult for me. I'm not the most patient person. Patience is something that I'm always having to work on. I'll just say it that way. But even more difficult than waiting on people is waiting on the Lord. That's harder for me. Maybe it's, hard, maybe it's harder for you. There is some sort of an inner turmoil I go through whenever I find myself in this holding pattern or waiting room where I'm waiting on God to do something. Of all the waiting rooms I wait in in my lifetime, that is the most difficult one for me. It's the one that belongs to the Lord. And I don't think that I'm alone because as a pastor, the toughest counseling moments I find myself in with other people are when they are in barren moments and there's nothing for me to fix. Now, now, whether it's legitimate physical barrenness, like cannot have kids, maybe it is a relational barrenness, do not have friends, maybe it's financial, maybe it's physical, some sort of place, some sort of waiting room where they're just waiting, waiting, waiting for God to do something. Those are especially difficult for a pastor because our heart is to fix things. What is broken? Let me have it for a few minutes. I'm going to fix it and give it back to you. And we're going to high-five each other and then walk out of this room. That's what every pastor wants to do. But those moments kind of don't allow us to do that. All we could do is look at you, cry with you, hurt with you, and point you to Jesus. That's really all we're able to do, okay? So I don't think I'm alone. So today, in today's passage, Abraham is actually kept and held in a holding pattern. He's just, he's waiting still. He's in a waiting room of sorts, and I think we can relate to this moment, even though this man lived over 4,000 years ago, I think he is very relevant to all of us today. So today's going to be a little different as well because I get to teach more than I normally do. Um, my job on Sunday mornings is to preach to the affections of your heart. Today I get to teach a little bit to the doctrine of the head, but I promise, don't panic, I am going to preach to the affections of your heart. It is good for our doctrine to grow and to stretch over time. It's really good for that. In fact, I was just looking this morning over um, the fact that we're going to be revamping our leaders collective a little bit to include more theologies, like systematic theology and biblical theology and historical theology. Not to make, not to make just the nerds nerdier or the dorks dorkier because that's just goofy. I mean, theology that is not able to nurture your love and your affections for Jesus, theology that is not applicable to your everyday, theology that doesn't disciple you to make disciples, I mean, why? I wouldn't waste your time. 
So I'm not going to waste your time today on that either. My job is to show you that this passage shows Jesus to us incredibly clear and that this passage is applicable to our life today, okay? My question is how do you view God when you were waiting in his waiting room? That's a tough waiting room. When you were just hovering and keeping a holding pattern. Whenever God is beautiful for others, but you're in a barren season, what what are you inclined to do? How do you feel? Could you be in one of those seasons now? I think we have a lot of barrenness in this room. I'm not just talking about not able to have children. I'm talking about all kinds of deserts and barren seasons for us. So let's just jump into the text. And I'm going to read with you. This is going to start in verse 1 of chapter 15. This is a very brilliant word from God to us. It's going to be very helpful for us. And it says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Let me just pause it just for a second. Why do you think, if you've been following the story, why do you think that God is having to even say, don't be afraid to Abram? Because if you think in what just happened, he just picked the fight with the biggest bully on the block. Lots of reasons for Abram to sleep with one eye open right now. Last chapter, the last little moment in Abram's life is he went and he raided some very successful kings. If you read through the chapter before this, there is one uber king that started smashing all these nations around him, and he had the allegiance of a lot of other kingdoms. And then Abram just took 300-something men and went off and raided this guy and took a lot of stuff. So he is open to reprisals. He is open to revenge in this moment. So I think I would be excited for if I was in that, in that same position for God to look at me and say, listen, I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to protect you. I've got your six. No one's going to hurt you. Lots of bullies out there, one that would like to see you under the ground, but it's not going to happen because I'm here for you. But it doesn't make Abram very happy. I mean, he's not enjoying that moment because he's not looking for protection he's looking for an heir looking for a son he's looking for a child in this moment i mean god has overcome abraham's enemies this much we know but he has not overcome the barren womb and this is tough for abram it's tough for sarah it's 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 tough for his family and you could tell because he launches right into it he spends zero seconds talking about being protected He spends no time thanking God for being a shield. He just goes right into, hey, what about a kid? It's been 10 years since you told me I was going to have an heir. It's been 10 years. No kid yet. Just saying. Still waiting. I think Abraham seems to be what I'm going to call today faith fatigued. He's just leaking trust. And he's tired of having faith. He's 90 years old by this time, by the way. And he's been waiting for 10 years. I mean, some of us have been waiting for 10 years for things, right? For different things. But man, it's exhausting, isn't it? And isn't it funny how God could be doing some brilliant and beautiful things around you, but all you could think about is the, the area that he is not bringing deliverance in, right? Yes, he's being beautiful over here, and he's being super good on my right, but on my left, I don't see him being very good at all. 
So what Abraham does is he kind of tosses Eliezer's name out there. Some of you noticed that when we read it. He throws that out there, which this just happens to be a guy who's helping out around the house. That's all he is. He is a house servant. Now, this is why he's using this name and not like a distant cousin or someone like Lot. It was very typical in this part of the world at this time in history for a barren couple to not be able to produce kids, to actually hand everything off to the lead servant, right, or the, the lead administrative servant, which in this case is Eliezer. And in this case, Abram and Sarah would die eventually. He would mourn them, bury them, and then carry their fortune further, right? So it wasn't super weird back then. It's also not super optimal, okay? That's what we're seeing. But what I want you to pay attention to and what I want you to catch out of this part, this first three verses, is that Abraham has waited 10 years and he has seen God deliver in multiple times in multiple ways, just not in the one area they want to see deliverance in. And listen, they're tired of waiting. They've been waiting and waiting. And now they have a backup quarterback over here whose name is Eleazar, and he's looking pretty good. Looking pretty good. I think this resonates with me. I think I do this. I have backup plans for whenever I feel like God is taking too long in a very specific area that I'm looking to have life in, whatever that looks like. I think it's very easy for me to look around and see him doing beautiful things here and there, but not in the one area that I've been fasting and praying and begging and waiting on. So God is good, but not super awesome, at least not here, at least not where I'm really asking him to be awesome for me. So what we do is we reach for a second best answer, Eleazar. We start to think on that level. You know, the interesting thing, pretty funny thing about Eleazar's name is what it really means is God is my help. It's funny that Abram is reaching for this guy by saying God is obviously not my help. It's an ironic choice. I think Eliezer, in our mind, means good enough. <laughs> I'm not getting what God promised, this awesome promise that God has given me, but I got good enough sitting over here. Maybe he will be my help instead of God being my help. It's just a picture of running out of faith. It's a picture of growing testy when it comes to our trust. We see other people gain life. We wait, we wait, we doubt, we wrestle. We wait another year. We doubt, we wrestle some more. Year six comes along. We're still doubting, still wrestling, have good days, bad days, but everything's starting to evaporate as far as faith and trust, and then eventually we start grabbing for things, things that feel like they might be good enough, Okay. So consider where has God cared for others around you, but you feel wildly uncared for, and you're tired of waiting. If you're being honest, you're tired of waiting. In other words, where are you wrestling, watching God be beautiful for other people around you, but not being very beautiful for you, and here you are, you remain barren. Now, part of what we've done in the story of Abram the last few weeks is we pointed out Areas where we can see trust more clearly, but also areas where we can see leadership more clearly because we have some, some fantastic elements of leadership in Abraham's life. And I will tell you, one of the major growth plates I have had as a leader in my life have been in waiting rooms. Have been waiting and wrestling and waiting some more and believing and trusting and revisiting why I'm trusting, and revisiting and reminding myself of why I have faith, that's where the most growth has been. Because his burden doesn't always feel so super light to me. So I have to go back. He promised me joy, 
but I don't always feel joyful, so I have to go back and wrestle with that. He says he'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me, but I sometimes feel a little bit forsaken, and sometimes I don't feel like I have his company with me, so I have to go back and I have to remind myself. It's a waiting room, holding, not seeing a lot of life, just waiting. If you want to grow, you need to be ready for long seasons of delay. If you don't believe me, ask Abraham, or Sarah, or David, or Job, or Moses. In fact, if you don't have seasons where you've been in the depth of this faith fatigue, and if you've not been placed in arenas where answers just refuse to come, I have no idea as a missionary how you will ever minister to somebody else that is struggling in barrenness. I don't know how that'll happen. You could talk, but you'll just be talking. But there is a source of ministry that comes from, I've been there. I've been there. So could God, in your dry season, your barren season now, be broadening your shoulders a little bit? Could that be happening? Where he's equipping you to disciple others as you've been discipled? Maybe he is not delivering the things that you want to have delivered, but he's delivering more of himself to you in this waiting room this period of just waiting. So let's look at verse four, I'm gonna keep going. Verse four, it starts off this way. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, he shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Some of your Bibles, it will say imputed. Some, it will say gifted. Some, it will say credited. It's all gonna basically mean the same thing right here. And, and listen, I'm gonna just pause on this part because this is a big passage. In my opinion, this is probably in the top three or four of the most significant passages in the Bible that you have in your hand. This is a big deal. It's the first time in the Bible we see the words counted, believed, and righteousness. It's the first time that word even shows up. In fact, this is the first time we catch a glimpse of justification by faith. This is where that foundation is poured, right here in this passage. Right? It's a bedrock passage for us, for our doctrine even here at this church. The idea that we are getting something we don't deserve and we don't get something that we do deserve, and just by believing and trusting, we have something credited to our account that we could never work and therefore we could never lose justification by faith. In fact, James, he picks up on this a little bit later, and this will be up on the screen, but in the second chapter of James, he says this, and the scripture was fulfilled, which means Jesus actually showed what the Old Testament was talking about, okay? So, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What I love about this passage is when it says, and he believed. So God escorts him out, stars in the sky, it's night. Whenever it says, and he believed, the understructure, the language behind that is where we get the word amen. That thing you do after prayers. That word that we say, which is actually saying, let it be so. I'm on the same page. We agree. We're going the same direction. That's what amen says. Abraham walks out. Here's the promise of God, looks at the sky and says, amen, amen. 
He said, amen to the promise giver without that promise being in front of his face. Why? Because he's in a waiting room. He doesn't get to taste and touch that very thing that God is saying he is going to give him. In fact, delay is going to be a normal part of his life. I'm getting this from Hebrews 11. We'll put it up on the screen. Stay where you're at. And the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, which is talking about Abraham, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, this is the key sentence. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Translation, Abraham is never going to make it out of that waiting room. I'm sure he'll have a kid come. He'll get to see that part of the promise come true. He'll get to see a family start. I mean, those are going to be little snapshots of, of God's promise and, and life and that barrenness coming through. But as it comes to his family blessing all of the families of the earth, he's not going to see that. Now, he's going to welcome it from afar off, and he's going to trust that God is going to do it. But he's not going to see it. You see, this moment of righteousness that's been gifted, it was not because Abraham was super smart. And it's not because he was wildly impressive, because he just wasn't, as we saw just a couple weeks ago, right? Not a super impressive husband, not a super impressive guy in some areas. It's not like Abraham walked out and looked at the stars and said, yeah, amen. And God looks at Abraham and says, wow, listen, the way you said amen just then, it's blowing my mind. You're so awesome, and you're so impressive with how you believed. Boom, you're saved. High five. You're a Christian now because you did such a good job of believing, and your posture was so incredible as you believed that now I'm going to give you salvation. Not how that happens. When he said amen, it's because God already cracked his heart open, had already taken righteousness and draped it all over Abraham's miserable life. That's what happens. Now listen, this might be a new thing for you. As I said earlier, we might stretch your doctrine a little bit, but this is also how it works for us. When we believe in Jesus as God's answer for broken mankind, it is only after God opens our heart to do so. He is the initiator, not us. He rescues us. We don't just accept him into our hearts. He rescues us. He gifts us righteousness, just as he's doing with Abraham right here. We can't even believe and trust until our hearts have been regenerated, okay? So when you were born, created in a womb, your heart, your soul, your, your it was generated, G, generated. But when the Holy Spirit comes and wipes across your life and takes that heart of stone out and puts a heart of flesh in, you are regenerated. Things are made new. Right? It's the doctrine of regeneration. It's not a big deal. It's just a big word to explain that God is the initiator. Okay? New hearts will have to come before new decisions do. New decisions do not come before new hearts do. And I know what some of you are thinking, but Luke, I remember making that hard decision and then being a Christian. And I'm with you. I do too. I mean, I, I didn't even hear the last half of the sermon that night that I became a Christian right? My heart was pounding. You know how sometimes your heart can pound and you hear it in your ears? It's a little weird. I don't know how that works, but that's what was happening, right? I stopped taking notes. Hands were getting a little sweaty. I started getting emotional, right? And I'm, th I'm thinking, as, as soon as this guy's done, I got to talk to somebody because I don't know what's going on, but something is changing in me, right? 
when that happened, God had cracked my heart. He didn't accept me after I made that decision. He changed my heart so that I was helpless to make any other decision. My heart was new. We actually see this walked out in Acts 16. Whenever the church was growing and popping from city to city and church planting was all the rage for the first time, we see this. One heard us, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Her heart was opened. Previously it wasn't, now it is. And she becomes a fixture in the church. Right? Now, for some reason, we grind against this doctrine. It's not super fun for a lot of people. And I, think it's, I, I do think it's really twofold. One, we're just a little bit more allergic to grace than we like to think. We're a little bit more resistant. But also, there's a piece of us, that fallen residue of Adam, that likes to grab any credit we can for our own rescue and our own salvation. It's just in us. So things like re- regeneration and God's effective calling on our life, it's tough for us. But remember, before you knew God, you didn't even have the right operating system. You didn't, even, you didn't even compute. In fact, you were dead. And dead people just don't do a very wildly impressive job of accepting, choosing, doing anything, because we're just dead. We were dead. And he came and he gave us a new heart, and all we could do was say, thank you, my Lord. If you were a Christian in this room, and you love Jesus, you probably remember that time, maybe the first time where your sin was radically disruptive to you. And it wasn't disruptive maybe a week or two earlier. That's because your heart had been changed, felt things differently, saw things a little differently. We get a picture of this in Ezekiel 36. I'll put this up on the screen as well. And God says this to us through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, now count how many times he says he is going to do something. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. And I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then he says what we will do. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. He does all the heavy lifting. I mean, if you could just do the math in there, six times he says he's gonna do something single-handedly before he even mentions what we're going to do, all right? Now, I will say when it comes to our hearts being regenerated, us wildly calling God our new king, whenever that happens, it all happens in an instant. It's not like there is some protracted timeline where We believe, and then a second goes by, and then we're regenerated, and a second goes by, and then we are uh, adopted. It all happens in the blink of an eye, but it really does happen, and it is a point in history, your history, if you are a Christian. You heard with ears that you'd never had before. Your heart was cut open and given a new one. You were regenerated. You believed. You trusted. He redeemed you. He rescued you. He adopted you. He favored you. He credited you. He gifted you. All of that happened in a wink, in a split second. That's how it happens. Now, it's important for you to know that God did not respond to you. You did the responding. You did the responding. Now, why the doctrine lesson? Why go way deep into that to come right back out? It's because if God gifted you from a place of grace, according to his own brilliance and his own will, 
and you didn't impress it out of his hands, that means that you cannot lose it for being very unimpressive now. Because you didn't earn it. You were gifted. It was given to you. You have a righteousness that Jesus developed, held, took off, and put on you. You were wearing, as a Christian, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I think that's pretty cool. And this passage here in Genesis is where we see it for the first time. It's where we see it. It's just an epic verse. Sorry for the scenic route, but I don't get a lot of opportunities to hit that. Let's look in verse 7. I'm going to move on. i got to move on. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abraham drove them away. So it just got real squirrely and weird out of nowhere for the Western reader, right? It's a little odd for the contemporary reader what's going on. Um, he does pick five animals. These actually happen to be the five animals that Israel make a practice of sacrificing further in history. Okay, interesting on that. But he picks five animals, destroys them, puts them in two columns. What's going on here is you're seeing what's called a cut covenant or a covenant that is being cut. I'm not even going to be able to do the theology of a covenant very well. I will say this. A covenant is more than an agreement, far more than a contract. Right? We do those things today. I have one of those with Verizon. Not a covenant, just a contract. Now, what a covenant does is it dictates and shapes your entire life, though, every aspect of your life. It is usually set up between a king and a vassal or a lord or a servant, but a lot of times it's actually set up with just two parties. Okay? And what they would do is they would swear an oath to serve and help each other. And if you do well, you get blessings. If you fail, you get curses. And whenever you see things like this where animals are destroyed and laid in columns and stuff like that, what they would do is two people, they were in agreement, they would hold hands, even guys, it's not weird, they would hold hands and they would walk in between the animals as a way of saying we were bound in blood and if I fail this promise, so be it to me. I will be destroyed just like these destroyed animals. It's a sign of the covenant between us. Okay? That's all that's happening right here. But I want you to keep it in your mind because we're about to use it. Okay? That's all he's talking about. Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, from the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch pass between the pieces because it just didn't get weird enough. It needed a little bit more weird. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt 
to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the, Paradi the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the, Af the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay. All right. What's going on? Anytime you see a dreadful darkness fall, things were about to get real, real fast. There's actually only a, two or three other times in the Bible that we see a dreadful darkness come and things get very serious. One is when the Ten Commandments were given. On, on Mount Sinai, you see a picture of great darkness and dread fall, but also after Jesus had died on the cross, what happened? The sun just went away. The sun just went away, and here we're seeing it again. Now, a fire pot and a torch, some scholars believe that is the same thing, that it was one thing floating. I don't know that it really matters for us today how many things were floating, something was floating between the two rows of animals. I know that fire is the main element here. And again, anytime you see, particularly in the Old Testament, whenever you see fire, it is signaling the presence of God because fire is unique. It is approachable and yet unapproachable at the same time, right? It leads us, it warms us, but it's also purifying and consuming all at the same time. In fact, later on, later on in Israel's history, Later on in our Bible, in the story of God, we will see a column of fire, a pillar of fire, lead and launch a new nation. Further on in the history of the church, we will see tongues of fire basically give a missional church by leading and launching that missional church. This happens to be the very first time we see it in the Bible, which again is pretty cool. A lot of firsts in this passage. Right? Now what's notable some of you picked it up, but you really need to pick this part of it up. God goes alone through the animals. It's not holding Abraham's hand. He's doing this alone. It's not a two-party covenant anymore. It's one. He is self-securing the entire covenant. No obligations on Abraham. This is what they call a covenant of grace. Not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. Again, there's a whole genre of theology called covenantal theology. I'm not even doing close to giving it any kind of, of uh, respect, but at the same time, I have to tell you this much so you understand how sweet God is as the initiator of this covenant. He is the administrator, and he is the keeper. He's the promise giver, and he's the promise keeper, specifically in this. Because now, even if Abraham messes up, God is graceful because he has underwritten the entire covenant. It's on him. In fact, God is saying, so goes it with me if this promise is broken. Hear it. So go it with me if this promise is broken. Interestingly enough, Jesus fulfills this covenant. And he is destroyed. Much like the animals laying on the ground as a sacrifice. Not because God broke the relationship, but because we did. Because he self-secured it. Because of our failure, the curse that belonged on us fell on him. That's why we see this in Galatians 3. I'll put it up on the screen, but stay where you're at. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Paul says, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Okay, big point here. This moment right here, our cursed king on a tree, that is our Amen. We don't look at the stars. Same promise giver, different promise. We don't look at the stars. We're not counting them. We're not gazing into the night. We're gazing upon a bloody cross and an empty tomb. The gospel is our amen moment for you and me, for the church. 
We trust the promise given by a faithful promise keeper, and God cleanses our hearts. He sprinkles them clean. He credits us righteousness, totally despite our ability to break the promise and misbehave. And instead of Jesus looking at us and saying, hey, if you misbehave, you'll get curses, he says, because you misbehave, I took your curse on myself. I have become the curse. Now, again, a lot more doctrine. How does all this doctrine affect us today, right? We have a new covenant hero. And this new covenant hero in Jesus, that is who we turn to whenever we start leaking faith and getting faith fatigue. Whenever we're in the waiting room and we're wringing our hands, we've been in a holding pattern, waiting, 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 waiting. This is our amen moment. This is our true north. This moment right here. When tempted to look at our long wait times where it feels like God is careless with us and thoughtless with us and absent with us, we look at a covenant where he establishes us, not with a destroyed animal, but with his destroyed son. When God isn't rescuing us when we want to be rescued or where we want to be rescued and we start to waver and we start grabbing at good enoughs and Eleazar's around us, we do have a promise maker who is also a promise keeper. Our God is a promise maker Our God is a promise keeper. He's done it for your benefit. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And this is not an invitation for us to whine. It's not an invitation for us to to grow weak. It's It's an invitation for us to be faithful and worship. Struggle, yes. Wrestle, yes. But worship. You know, in our barren realities, whatever they are for you in your life, where God is not doing beautiful things for you, it's it's okay to question what God is doing and what he's not doing. He's sovereign, and we just don't know. We, We don't know if we should be wrestling with the things that we're wrestling with half the time. It's okay for you to question that. It's okay for you to try to work that out. Some of you are actually questioning God's character for you as you're in a waiting room. Your character, his love, his, his uh, um, I guess his desire for you, you're, you're questioning that. I don't think he's freaking out over that either. But what he is doing is he's saying, look to the covenant that he has secured for you, the one where he initiates, administrates, and keeps. Because in that waiting room, with all that wrestling, with all that faith fatigue, he does something very generous and he moves our gaze from just staring at our problem and our long wait time and he moves our gaze to see a cross and a tomb with no king in it where are you barren right now and where is God and what are you reaching for what is good enough for you in this season Why do you trust? Where is Jesus? This is how we develop as worshipers. This is how we develop. I mean, the whole theme of this this entire word is trusting God in our times of desperate fatigue. That is how we develop as worshipers, but how do we develop as missionaries? I'm about to end this, but I always like to talk a little bit about how this develops us as missionaries because we are a church of missionaries, right? And I will say this, culture does not do a fantastic job of interpreting grace. It's not supposed to. It's not really, it's not really ever been exposed to something like grace. I've, first 15 plus years of my Christian life, I didn't understand grace. But when you grow up into this world, generated, not regenerated, 
You're used to earning, you're used to achievement and performance. That's how you get things. And a lot of times when we become Christians, we just carry that straight up into our relationship with God. But this is culture's norm. Earning, achievement, performance. So grace has to be taught, has to be explained, has to be illustrated with a life lived. Because this idea that we get something we don't deserve and we don't get something we do deserve, that's total foreign, that's total alien to all of us. And again, I think we're allergic to it to a certain degree. And can we just say this? Your neighbor at work, at home, your neighbor, not great at following rules, right? Not a great rule follower, and here's a newsflash, they know it. Some of you in here who would call yourself far from the Lord, you know you're a miserable rule breaker. I mean, this is the deal. We can't even follow our own rules, right? We have our own set of rules. These are my ethics. We call them ethics. We have our ethics of what we think is right or wrong. Isn't it funny how we can't even follow our own system of belief? We move our ethics, calling them situational ethics. Everything changes depending on the situation. We know we're horrible at following our own rules. So when it comes to the idea of following God, who has absolute fixed rules, no way. No way. But as missionaries, we are not to do anything other than just tell them, listen, you're a horrible rule follower. Look at how horrible you are at following even your own rules. Rolling stop signs, you eat stuff you don't want to eat, you cuss when you're in front of your mama, you're doing all kinds of stuff that you're breaking all your own rules. Of course you're a rule breaker. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. We have one who followed all the rules but was destroyed because we could never follow any of the rules. And you could be rescued from that. Missionaries that have no grace in their lungs are kind of rowing the boat in the wrong direction. Lots of churches being planted, lots of churches being led right now where all we're doing is constructing and fabricating Pharisees that are following rules, but they cannot say what grace is in their life, nor can they state what the gospel means for them in their failures. It's very difficult. So as good missionaries, we just can't afford to do that. We just can't afford to do that. I'm spending too long on this. I will sign off with this. Some of you in here who might be very far from Jesus, you might also be experiencing some of this regenerative heart change that I'm talking about. In fact, it might be happening today. And listen, it's not my preaching if it is. It's not this church if it is. It's the Holy Spirit doing it. That's what Paul says when he's talking to Titus. You feel a sense of conviction maybe that you didn't have in the past. Maybe now you're caring about things you didn't used to care about. You hurt for things you didn't used to hurt over. It's almost like scales are falling off if we were to try to describe it, and that's the way the Bible does describe it, God might be regenerating your heart right now. Might be doing it. Might be making it alive, opening your eyes to believe as he did with Lydia in that moment, to pay attention to the gospel, to reckon with it for the first time. If this is you, I'd love to help you, maybe help you sift through all of your question marks and confusion and difficulties with this, but listen, there's no special prayer that's going to make that like a super solid deal, understand? And there's no dust or oil or anything we have up here that when we put it on you, it just makes it even more real. That's just not going to happen. If God wants your heart, he's got it. If God is going to regenerate your heart, it's going to get done. Because he is not responding to you, you are responding to him. But I would love to help you kind of work through all of that. Because it could be scary. You don't know what's going on. You don't know if something is going on. 
So be sure to grab me or any of the leaders here, but be sure to talk to somebody before you leave. Amen? All right, stand up with me. I'd love to pray with you just for a minute. And then the team will come out. And if you're new to Legacy, we might do things a little bit differently. One is that, yeah, we're we're about to do more music. We only did one song, so we have more to come. But also, you're going to see people kind of splitting off from time to time to go back and get elements. We have bread and we have wine. It's how we commune together. It's what we call communion. If you are not a Christian, we'd invite you not to take that. We'd invite you to take Jesus instead and take him into your heart. But if you love God and you are a member of God's family, we'd love for you to take communion with us. Take it with your family, your roommate. Take it with somebody and pray with them today. Father, we thank you for being so kind to us. I was not impressive when you found me. I I was not doing anything of any value. I wasn't lovable. I wasn't deserving. I wasn't even a good bet. And for your brilliance, for your will only, you... You chased after me when I was running away from you. And that's not because I was a drug dealer. It's not because I was a bank robber or anything weird like that. It's just because I was a sinner. And every ex-lost sinner in this room would say the same thing. And even now as I sin every day, I at least am cloaked and I carry about me the dressing of righteousness that was awarded me by the work of your son. And like every other brother and sister in the Lord, you look at us and you say, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant, well done. Not because I'm impressive, but because Jesus was impressive. And Lord, I know people have been hurting in here and they've been waiting. They've been in a holding pattern. Maybe they can't have kids. Maybe they're just going paycheck to paycheck year after year. Maybe they can't really develop deep friendships. Maybe they have no joy. Maybe everything feels like a burden. Maybe they're anxious all the time. Maybe worry is their normal. For whatever reason, I know everyone in this room has got some sort of barren season. Lord, that you would find us in those places and that you would remind us that you are a covenant maker and that you are a covenant keeper. That you are a promise maker and you secure your promises. Lord, we love you and we worship you from a place of just being amazed at what you've done for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.